my name is Justin Clune. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the man who loved giant breasts. Yes, we're talking about Mr. Russ Meyer, a filmmaker that I have to say, I have never really explored at length. Even though I feel like I've seen most of his films over my cinephile uh, life. Yeah, I mean, he was one of those guys who, uh, when we were getting interested in movies, when we were reading video hounds, cult flicks, and trash picks, he was one of the OGs of like cult cinema. You got your Herschel Gordon Lewis's, your Roger Corman's, your Ed Wood's, and there's Russ Meyer. He was a guy who, you know, was a very canny self-promoter and, you know, obviously did very well distributing his own uh, nudie cutie movies, mm-hmm. became known as the king of sexploitation. And then in the 80s, when cult movies were being sort of codified as a concept, he was one of the O'Tour. I mean, that poster image of faster pussycat kill kill is like one of the iconic ones speaking of conflicts and trash picks it's right there on the cover so yes as you alluded to earlier this is a filmmaker who loved breasts his movies offer many and varied pleasures uh for both above the neck and below the waist Mm -hmm. but uh overwhelmingly tits are his uh, main subject and also Charles Napier's beautiful four. His granite face. Love myself some Charles Napier. Fantastic. You know, one of Ross Meyer's major legacies is that he was a good filmmaker, mm-hmm. which, you know, in nudie cutie movies, the early sexploitation films was not always that common. That he had a vision, there was energy behind his filmmaking, and that there was also a style that you can associate with his work. This kind of almost static but very rapidly edited in your face images that anytime you read about his kind of approach to filmmaking, people always point out he was a World War II combat photographer. Yeah, and on his style, which was heavily influenced by those newsreels he shot, his camera almost never moves, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of very rapid editing and a lot of very exaggerated compositions and uh, camera angles. He liked to boast that even if the woman's breasts weren't that big, I will shoot them from an angle that will make them look huge. His first film, The Immoral Mr. T's, was the first uh, nudie movie. That's what they called them back then. Nudie, nudie movies. Cutie. Uh, first nudie cutie to achieve something like mainstream distribution. Because before then, there were uh, imports, underground stuff. There was also the nudist camp movies, which some of our favorite filmmakers uh, dabbled in, like uh, Edgar G. Elmer. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, nudism was per se was considered... Uh, There was a Supreme Court ruling that said that nudism was not uh, in and of itself obscene because these films documented a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had many very high-minded documentaries about the goings-on at a nudist camp. Boring. Russ Meyer's The Immoral Mr. Tease from 1959 was uh, the first movie that was sort of... Uh, I, I mean, it's hard when you say the first of anything, but, yeah. it, but, but it was the first movie to have a plot uh, that featured sort of gratuitous female nudity that achieved uh, mainstream above ground distribution. I mean, plot is a very generous reading of immoral Mr. Tease, where you mostly have this character played by Tease himself. Ogles women, sees them uh, naked in his mind. There's a lot of very almost abstract stuff that happens. At one point, he goes to the dentist, which was 
uh, Russ Meyer's real dentist. And they take out his tooth and it's like a giant thing. And the assistant is naked. Stuff like that. It's one of the better nudie cuties of its era. There's humor through the narration that uh, runs throughout the picture. Well, the narration's funny because there are a lot of scenes like when there are some women canoeing on a lake, the narrator will go, uh, water is a chemical that is made up of these elements. It's like a joke about the fact that it needs to be, you know, a documentary to be able to be distributed. And, and every scene, all the nude scenes have to have some socially redeeming value. So if you got a narrator telling you the chemical composition of water, mm-hmm. uh, that's your socially Undeniable. redeeming value. And so the movie made a huge chunk of change and he made a bunch of other similar pictures. Before we go further, I do want to say that, you know, these podcasts that we do, they capture moments in time. In most cases, we have relationships with whoever we're talking about that started before the episode, may continue after the episode for many years. This just captures a particular moment in our lives, in the in the cultural zeitgeist at large. What Will's trying to say is that he's not feeling Russ Meyer this week. Yeah, I was not feeling Russ Meyer this week. I do like Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. I've always liked Russ Meyer. I wanted to do anything but watch his movies this week. <laughs> I'm not just saying that because I was having a hard time with them, but I also feel like they're a little bit out of fashion. And it's not just because the owners of his work are doing an insane thing right now where they're wild. These movies are simply not on the market. So Aero Video in the UK has put out Blu-rays and box sets. They've put out DVDs, yes. not Blu-ray. Okay, so I thought a Blu-ray had come out of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill in like Germany? Okay, maybe, but mm. Aero did them on DVD like 15 years ago. Yeah, and now nothing. You can only officially, officially, folks, get these movies on bad-looking DVDs. Oh my God, those covers it look so bad. Like, just non-anamorphic, mm. standard-definition transfers from 30 years ago mm. from the official Russ Meyer website. And that'll be, I don't know, like $80 or something like that? An insane amount of money. And a lot of that was because Mr. Meyer himself very proudly self-financed and self-distributed most of his movies and was like, I will never see my movie in the bargain bin. My movie will always be sold for what it is worth. And as a result, these movies are simply not part of the conversation to the extent that they used to be. And they also look like crap most of the time. Yeah, I I mean, Criterion has released one of his greatest movies, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but that's because that's a studio production, 20th Century Fox. Yeah. But I also think that's not the only reason he's not in fashion right now. I think the time, the current moment we're in is not quite conducive to Russ Meyer because, you know, he's a man of his time. He's a man of the suppressed 1950s. He's a man of the... His uh, father abandoned him. He was a mama's boy right up to the day of his death. Could a breast fixation perhaps have something to do with... He's a man of like the Playboy era, the early Playboy era of like, you know, it's the 1950s and we're rebelling against the squares and we're also testing the limits of censorship. You know, I know that certain of his films have been reclaimed over the years as feminist in some way, like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill mm-hmm. is beloved by B. Ruby Rich, the feminist film critic who called Meyer the first feminist filmmaker, which is a bit of a stretch, I think. But, you know, he loved dominant women who crushed pitiful men. Nevertheless, even if the movies really were in circulation a lot, even if like the Criterion channel did a whole retrospective of them, um, which they should do, 
I don't think they would quite capture the mood of the times for people right now are so interested in like women and mm. uh, female perspectives and like somebody like Doris Wishman, his contemporary feels kind of like more in keeping with what people are interested in right now. You mean you th- don't think people will be interested in powerful women like in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill who are free and just want to take down the old person, the lunkhead and eh, the regular guy. People will love that. Like mm. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, I think is a perennial film. Mm. People will always love it. But there's a certain laddish side to Ross Meyer, a certain kind of like puerile boyish side. Yeah, absolutely. That I think is a little bit. And also there's there's a side of him that like in some of the other movies, he loves to punish the women and he loves he loves harsh violence. He likes to mix sex and violence in a really weird way. I don't think we watched any of those movies this week though no like, we didn't check out motorcycle or mud honey or super vixens yeah. which has that i don't know if you've ever seen it a long time ago yeah, yeah yeah me too it has that like brutal scene where like charles napier kicks his wife to death in the bathtub but also i mean i don't want to give the wrong impression about the movie it's a very goofy movie mm-hmm. like it's really silly really comical Each scene there's a new woman more busty than the one before, which is what Russ Meyer promised. But yeah, let's go back to uh, Russ Meyer's early life. Where'd he come Russ from? Russ Meyer, like I mentioned, his parents were of German descent, and he likes to tell the story that, you know, his father abandoned him, but his mother pawned the ring that she had to get him an eight millimeter camera. He was a fan of making movies from the age of 15, and during World War II, he was an army combat cameraman, and he ultimately became a staff sergeant and some of his footage was actually used in patent he did a lot of footage that you see all the time and it's not signed to him we don't really know what all the footage is but he was largely assigned to cover general Patton. he filmed the original dirty dozen before they went out on their mission you can see that style he would bring the style that he learned you know the, the really elemental style that he learned as an army photographer into what he did right after which was industrial films and educational film i mean that is such a direct connection to what the immoral Mr. Tease is like or what his style would be from that point on. There's never really in a Russ Meyer film a, um, what do I want? The word I'm looking for is like lavish. It's always very hard cut and in your face. And even in Beyond the Valley of the Doll, it's like, ratatat. That's how you would, uh, you know, explain Russ Meyer's visual sense. We did watch Faster Pussycat Kill Kill this week, which was a, originally a box office flop, but its reputation turned around when no less than John Waters called it not only the best movie ever made, but the best movie that ever will be made. I was fascinated that it was Russ Meyer reacting to his previous film, Motorcycle, which he's like, I did one with men, so why not do one with women now? Yeah, so this one followed three go-go dancers and it has an iconic opening scene where like the opening scene of this movie is the quintessential Russ Meyer scene where it's these women framed from this extreme low angle shot like go-go dancing on the bar and it keeps cutting back and forth between like the men who are cheering them on go 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 and they look like gargoyles and and like the band playing and mm-hmm. and just this really aggressive uh soundtrack of sound effects and music I mean, the iconic scene is definitely when Tura Satana pins a man to the ground with his arm up behind his back and then snaps his neck. Tura Satana is amazing in the film. Yes. Um, did, did she ever appear in another Meyer film? Because I remember reading that they hated each other. I don't believe they did. Okay, yeah. so, you know, fun fact about Russ Meyer is he did not allow sex during the productions of his films. I mean, for a guy who is the king of the nudies, he, he at times comes across as a bit of a moralist when you read about him. And he was also like, uh, you know, 
know, that hardcore stuff. Not for me. Yeah, well, I, I was reading Roger Ebert's obituary for him, and Ebert said he didn't do hardcore for two reasons. One was he wanted to play legitimate theaters where he could, you know, be dependent upon to recoup his costs. He didn't want to deal with the mob who mm. were working a lot of- Makes sense, because he would have had to deal with the mob if he made hardcore from They would have probably just taken it, duped it, and then robbed profit from his pocket. And number two, he was not interested in anything below the tits. Yeah. A mother fixation, if you will. Yeah, like, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, these are erotic movies, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, certain of them are more erotic than others. Ooh, they get kind of to be horror films near the end when um, plastic surgery comes to play in his pictures. If you want to find these movies arousing, there's a certain sweet spot. Like, around the time of Vixen from 1969, mm-hmm. that's when the women still look like normal women. Well, he Russ Meyer uh, would say like, ah, yeah, the star of Vixen doesn't look like my normal women that I put in the picture. I was like, yeah, that's probably why it was such a big success for us. Yeah, she's just a regular big-breasted woman. Exactly. She doesn't she doesn't have like these like by the time you get to Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, do you remember in that movie, there's this character, she's a woman who's like the radio DJ. She's like a host on a Christian radio network. She has these tits that are so huge that when I saw the movie, I thought, oh, those are fake. Like mm-hmm. It's like he's making a joke about his own, well, they, they were fake, <laughs> but, course, but yeah. not in that way. Yeah. <laughs> when you're talking about that middle ground, for some people, it would be something like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, because all those characters are so stylized, that black and white especially if you watch it in a high-definition transfer, it's so crisp, and you can just feel it as it plays out on screen, when it essentially turns, as one uh, high flutin critic called it, um, a variation on the Virgin Spring, if you will. Oh, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I guess it is. Uh, beautiful film, every shot of painting, anchored by the great performance of Chura Satana, and it has iconic scenes like driving the car into the guy, and he's like trying to push yeah. it away, and it, it combines vehicular mayhem with sex. The thing about Russ Meyer films, and I think it's probably the thing that has kept me at a distance, if you will, is that his pictures are very formless. They feel like an industrial or a newsreel at times. By formless, do you mean that there's... There's no rising energy or anything like that. Yeah. Just like stuff happens until it's over. Even Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I love Beyond the Valley. Love it. Probably is his best, best film. Movie, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, as I was watching it this week, I felt pulverized by it. <laughs> I mean, like, you're right. He starts at 11 in his best movies, and he just goes from there. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the previous year, in 1969, he released Vixen, which was a sensation. Vixen came at just that right time, 1969, when all those movies like I Am Curious Yellow were coming out, that after recent Supreme Court victories were going further and further towards hardcore pornography. And Vixen was probably the most erotic thing or the most overtly sexual thing he'd made up to that point. Especially one of the more grounded things huge success and this was also the time when Hollywood Studios the studio system had crumbled and these old dinosaurs who ran these studios were looking at things like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde and saying we don't understand what's happening but this guy this guy who made this freaking nudie movie made 20 million dollars off it the budget of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was only 900 thousand dollars but it's a 20th century Fox film Mm -hmm. and it looks beautiful crisp widescreen photography all the same stylistic ticks that Meyer has in all of his other picture, also a Roger Ebert co-scripted screenplay. Yes, that's right. So do you know the fun story that, you know, Roger Ebert was a critic for three years at this point. He took a leave of absence to write this movie. Roger Ebert was the first serious critic to write an article about Ross Meyer. Uh, well, well-known fact about Roger Ebert. He also loves giant breasts. <laughs> yes, that's true. When Beyond the Valley of the Dolls came out, Gene Siskel reviewed it in the Tribune, and he gave it a bad review, and he says, it's a mystery why Russ Meyer saddled himself with a neophyte screenwriter. <laughs> Didn't even name. Oh, what a little <laughs> asshole. <laughs> 
<laughs> so funny. So Beyond the Valley of the Dolls tells the frantic story, the very dense story of three women in an all-female rock band called the Carrie Nations who head out west to find fame and fortune in Hollywood. Rocking all the way. Great songs in this movie. I love that opening montage where they're talking about L.A. and it's just this dizzying, pulverizing montage of just L.A. scenes, including some from later in the film. I mean, this is a film that opens in a classic Meyer way where you see the climax of the picture. So they get there. I mean, so much happens in the film that it's they not... They meet Z-Man. Well, Z-Man is the key character. Yes. And he is the groovy music producer who is modeled after Phil Spector. Uh, his famous line is, it's my happening and it freaks me out. And uh, Z-Man has a little bit of a secret that he reveals at the end of the film. Now, I wish I could have gone into this film blind the first time I watched it because, wow, that climax, even watching it now, is insane. Well, you know the fun story that when Ebert was writing it, you know, I think he wrote it basically stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Ebert said that Meyer was a director who... All he wanted to hear was typing in the other room. Mm. And if there was no typing, he would say, what's going on in there? Well, yeah, all the actors who worked with him said he would run the productions like a military commander that's like, all right, let's go. We got to do this. I understand because Meyer was paying for everything himself. So it sounds like he was a little rough on those sets. When writing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Ebert, you know, revealed the twist ending of the film. And Meyer said, you can never have too many tits in a movie. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, But yeah, so this movie, I mean, what is there to say? It is an experience that you have to just kind of take in that even if you have not seen it and you're listening to this podcast go watch it it will have the same impact on you well you have to let it wash over you it's it's a pure sensory experience i mean in terms of what the film is saying which i actually thought about a little bit this time when i watched (laughs) it doesn't it clarify it at the end when a voiceover is like here are the mistakes that every character made this person had too much love this person was too friendly (laughs) yeah i mean it's a funny kind of like pseudo moralistic Mm. movie i mean i'm hardly the first person to say this but obviously Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert were not Hollywood insiders. Mm-hmm. Like they were writing about a scene. Hollywood sickos, if you will, at the top. Yeah, they weren't on Epstein's plane. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know, check the logs. Roger Ebert probably got on there at some point, didn't he? He's writing about this scene with this kind of like wide-eyed fascination where it's like both a satire of a really moralistic Hollywood melodrama. It's a satire of something like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls while also sort of indulging in that stuff. Ebert has also said that like he got to Hollywood to write this movie at the time the Sharon Tate killing happened. Mm-hmm. And that sort of just hung over the town at the time and I feel like you can see a bit of that in this movie where it has this really weird relationship with Hollywood decadence and hippie culture and I don't know sex and drugs and rock and roll all the parties they go to seem very stressful too much happening. hey you know who's at one of those parties supposedly it, Pam Greer is right? oh, I didn't know that actually but I was gonna say Coleman Francis really he's the old drunk near the beginning I watched the movie again and, and you can't miss him he's a fat old drunk <laughs> uh, Col- Coleman Francis folks for those who don't know um, is a very bad film Maker. Oh, yes. But I'm glad that he had his time to shine in a Russ Meyer picture. So this movie was a huge success. $9 million on a $900,000 budget. But it was rated X, which they did not want. And for many years, 20th Century Fox was very embarrassed that they had released an X-rated movie. Like for many years, it was not available on video until like 2006. Yeah, I got a two-disc special edition. I remember it was a big deal when it came out. Afterwards, though, Zanuck was still pro-Meyer. I think Meyer had like a three-picture deal. Yeah, and what he ended up doing was a picture called The Seven Minutes, which, you know, if you read articles, they're like, it's uh, his worst picture. It's not. What's interesting about it is that he was given a script and it seemed right up his alley. It's about censorship. It's about a bookseller who is kind of entrapped while selling a banned book. 
And later on, when a rich guy's son is blamed for murder of a woman, which is shown in very uh, uncomfortable detail, they find the book in his car and they say, oh, the book caused him to do it. So we're going to try the bookseller for like really selling something terrible. And it's about the lawyers who have to deal with it and trying to find an answer. If you think about it for one second, how can they prove that this book does have moral value? Uh, you'll figure it out instantly. It's like, who could have written it? What gender could this person have that oh, would I see. shock the jury so much? That this would have been a very trendy topic at the time. Mm -hmm. This kind of like socially redeeming value. Uh, can, can pornography lead to violent crime kind of thing? And what's infamous about it is that Meyer reacted to this kind of straightforward material by editing it like he didn't know what was happening. So there is, I'm, someone broke it down that like each cut lasts something less than five seconds. In the middle of a sentence, it will cut to someone else doing nothing and then cut back to the person talking unmotivated he's just like cutting as much as he can and unfortunately by the end of the movie you feel he's tired he's like hey, here's a court case well the reason that nobody likes this movie or wants to watch it is because it's his only non-sexploitation movie there's a lot of sex in it too yeah and a lot of like nudity as well i so i guess like obviously uh, they wanted him to do something that wasn't x-rated but mm -hmm. they also i guess wanted to tap into his reputation as like the king of controversy in some way mm -hmm. uh, but that marked the end of his tenure at a Hollywood studio. Yeah, so from what I read, it sounds like Zanuck, who was running Fox at the time, went to Warner Brothers and kind of left Meyer on his own. So he's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go back and do independent stuff. So he made a few more independent films. And at this point in his career, throughout the 70s, the balance in his style... Or, or his his uh, the mood of his films shifts because in the 60s the movies were funny well the movies were like sexy first and funny second well they seem to have a kind of backbone of like parody and stuff like that like you look at faster pussycat kill kill and while it's in your face he's doing wild stuff there's also a kind of picturesque quality to it also faster pussycat kill kill is campy but it's not jokey yes it's not uh spoofy if you will whereas the ones that come after the seven minutes boy, 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 boy. yeah really goofy stuff yeah. and uh roger ebert continued to write some of those he wrote up and he wrote beneath the valley of the ultra vixens and these later ones are a bit of a mixed bag i think mm -hmm. um they can be really goofy at times i do like beneath the valley of the ultra vixens i think it's quite funny that's his last film well his last feature-length film uh, yeah not the documentary about his paramour at the time i'll get to that in a sec beneath the valley of the ultra vixens is the story of a man who he has a problem he can simply only uh, have anal sex with women. I'm sure Meyer and Ebert were patting themselves on the back, laughing up a storm. Well, I mean, if you know anything about Russ Meyer, you know that his life was heavily influenced at this time by his then paramour, Kitten Natividad, mm -hmm. who stars in his last couple movie, well, his last couple of feature length movies, uh, a very buxom woman. Uh, it must be said. Yes. Why did I even say that? It's obvious. <laughs> Whenever you read interviews with them, like in John Waters' book, Shock Value, there's a long interview where it's like, I taught Russ how to eat pussy. You know, it's like he didn't know anything except like... Missionary. <laughs> just to have it Just like in and out really quick. And so she opened him up to New Horizons, hence this anal sex themed comedy that he made in the 70s. You haven't read his uh, Mammoth three volume biography that goes through all of his sexual escapades? I clean breast. Three volume book that 
that you can get if you want to pay eight hundred dollars. I can't afford it. Sorry. Many, um, you know, people who have picked it up, unreadable. <laughs> like, I do want it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. If anybody out there wants to donate a copy that me and Will can share on every other week with each other, then we'd be happy to, you know, take it into the important cinema club library. So yeah, you just mentioned that there was a documentary near the end of his career as well. Yeah, well, his final film after Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, which came out in the late seventies, he would constantly be talking about making another film. He was going to make like a three or four hour mammoth autobiographical film called The Breast of Russ Meyer. Never got made. And, you know, throughout the 70s, like he had a problem because while these movies continued to play for a while, hardcore pornography happened. He didn't want to do hardcore. And, you know, the bookings for his movies started to go dry. In the 90s, he made a film called Pandora Peaks, which is about the largest breasted woman you will ever see. And it's just her like dancing. and uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> hang, hang. It's just like 25 minutes long. I mean, I hate to break it to any listener here who does not know the end of Russ Meyer, but like a lot of the exploitation filmmakers, there's an Ed Woodiness around the final years of his life. He definitely lost his mind. Yeah, in the two thousand, suffering from Alzheimer's. It, it was hard for him towards the end. And now whoever owns the estate is just not putting the movies out. And mm. I do think people, certain of the movies are starting to get lost, I think, in the cultural memory a little bit. Maybe I'm overstating the case. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls ain't going anywhere, especially with like a Criterion release. But like people are not, not that I can see in wide numbers doing the full retrospective. And I think people should, despite what I said on this podcast. The Seven Minutes was actually included on a uh, DVD, I believe, of uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. It was like an extra <laughs> So that one, uh, it's out there if you want to watch it. Revisiting him this week, I found him exhausting and I found his worldview a little puerile, but uh, maybe next week I'll be back in the fold. You'll just bounce back. (laughs) (laughs) So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Tony Marshall and it goes Toronto director. Well, yes, I am a Toronto director. Thank you, Tony. Hey guys, I've loved all the new stuff you have introduced me to, including all your episodes on Canadian cinema. I'm curious, though, that you've never talked about Matt Johnson. At least amongst my uni class, his work is held up as a great example of independent filmmaking. Is he overexposed, not to your taste, or like Mark Cousins in my city, just a fact of everyday life? Wait, what does that mean? Is Mark Cousins just wandering around this guy's city? That's interesting. I like the idea of Mark Cousins being... Narrating what he's doing. (laughs) P.S. Please cover Zizek's least favorite director, Amir Kustarika. I ask, as he and Theo... Angelopoulos, I'm saying that name incorrectly, I apologize. One of the, one of the greats. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of his work either. Are two of my favorites. I can't find any English language discord on them. Yours, a BA film graduate. I should point out that the Projection Boost did an episode on uh, Theo Angelopoulos film that's really good. It's like three hours long and they bring in like actual like academics who have written about him and actually knew him. There's got to be stuff on Costa Rica, right? He's mm-hmm. like a kind of big, uh, I don't know. Uh, do, do you have any recommendations? <laughs> no, I, but you know what? Listen, as we always say, I've actually had good old Theo on the list for a while, but you know, I need to ease Will into it. Give him like a real easy thing, a couple in a row. And then I'm like, all right, it's time to watch these three hour, three hour movies. Yeah. Yeah. Where you don't even really know what, time period it is it'll like change in the shot <laughs> i mean here's the thing folks we do this podcast every week <laughs> every week it can be it can be hard sometimes but i would actually like a excuse to dive into his movie so perhaps and when it comes to matt johnson 
Yeah, I'm a fan of the Dirties, and I appreciate his second film, Operation Avalanche. Yes. I don't know. Matt Johnson is a Toronto-based director. Those are the two the two movies he's made. He also had a show that was on the Vice Network. The, yeah, the Vice Network called Nirvana: The Band, The Show. And yeah, I I liked the Dirties quite a bit. It was a fake home movie, basically, mm-hmm. like two Columbine kids. Yeah, who are planning like a massacre at their school. But it's a comedy. You know, it was very well done. And Operation Avalanche was done kind of in the same style of like fake behind the scenes, but it was set in the 60s with like two guys helping to fake the moon landing Mm. and like Kubrick is involved and everything and I I thought they were both uh, quite excellent I don't know. I haven't really thought of him in a bit because I haven't seen anything from him since Operation For a while, they like kind of elevated him as he's the next great hope for Canadian cinema. Yeah. I mean, is he doing anything? Other than Nirvana, the band, the show? No, nothing. Like that was it. I did hear uh, a pitch. This was way when the Dirties came out on DVD that he wanted to do a film about John A. McDonald, shoot it like a mockumentary, and Paul Gross would play John A. McDonald. Oh, that would funny. be so funny. And like, they just never explain who's filming or anything like that. I guess I was wondering, you know, when I watched those movies, like Operation Avalanche felt very much like, okay, the first movie gets noticed and now we're going to do like the bigger version of mm. that thing we did. But it's like, where does it go from there? Is he going to stick with that style? Because Nirvana the Band, the show, was basically kind of like a Borat-style prank show. Mm-hmm. Also in that style. I I mean, I heard a story that his co-writer on The Dirties, Evan Morgan, they had actually done a pitch for a film that would be about like a kid detective when he's older. And it was going to be the Encyclopedia Brown movie. Matt Johnson sold their pitch as the Encyclopedia Brown movie. But Evan Morgan then went by himself and directed the excellent kid detective that came out last year, which has that plot without Matt Johnson. Uh, Matt Johnson, if if that was in any way incorrect, please write write in and correct the record. (laughs) But Matt Johnson, speaking of Mark Cousins, every film party you could spot Matt Johnson's <laughs> yeah. white t-shirt. Like, yeah, yeah. He made that his brand. Like, I wear a white t-shirt. That's Does it. that impress the letter writer that we've been in the same room as Matt Johnson? Multiple times. I have friends who know Matt Johnson very well. Wow, the name drop central here <laughs> yes. at the Important Cinema Club. Well, I remember for a while, like, was it Telefilm? It was like, just throw Matt Johnson some money. He'll pick a bunch of filmmakers well, who will get money. Well, because didn't he do that panel discussion where it was on the state of Canadian film where he sort of, like, righteously spoke truth to power about how, why is Telefilm funding all of these like stale old Canadian directors when it could be funding, you know, you know, young talent like uh, they like, did like a it was it like a ten thousand or a fifteen thousand dollar program where you would get like a small amount of money like that to like go out and make a movie. Yeah, and he it was sort of attributed to him. He sort of like was the mastermind of it. He worked with why weren't those people in this room when we were talking about that? <laughs> We were saying the same stuff. I like to imagine he gives this big speech and it's like those one of those movies like, you should be fired for what you said, but I'm impressed by your moxie. Here, have $100,000. Yeah, I was impressed by his moxie then. I, I, he's, he's an amusing figure. Mm-hmm. And now who knows where he is. <laughs> I hope he's out there. I hope he has another one. Okay, one more thing about Matt Johnson and The Dirties is The Dirties was the first film distributed by Smodcast Pictures. I beat me to it. That's what I was going to say next. Kevin Smith started up his own distribution line for a brief period in the 2000s where he was going to distribute under known or under seen films the gold ninja video of its day (laughs) and oh man if only i can dream that one day i will too walk into a dollar store and find gold ninja video blu-rays which is what happened to the smodcast picture uh, catalog obviously the dirtiest is probably the best and the best regarded of them but then there were some other ones alter ego i believe was one bindle stiffs wasn't that one there was like some teen sex comedy with a title like that yeah uh we should well let's do a marathon of all those movies (laughs) (laughs) we should do anything from the kevin smith extended universe so we should do a marathon that has like vulgar oh, or what's that one that jeff anderson made 
how do you know or or, <laughs> or did now right you after know clerk too yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that one drawing flies is what i'm thinking of the one that stars jason lee and was directed oh, by yeah. malcolm ingram yes. toronto friends big of toronto filmmakers right. who I, oh i got some good malcolm ingram stories because i drove around with him in a car to deliver stuff holy shit tell me about <laughs> malcolm ingram nope you know what we'll have to do a marathon about for it for our malcolm ingram episode which <laughs> we'll certainly do <laughs> oh man i want him to come after us he lives in toronto or he did god it just feels great talking about all this toronto stuff because you know like we were under house arrest for a year and a half you know we didn't get to go do anything and now i feel like i'm part of a community again <laughs> well speaking of going out and doing stuff this week on our patreon we went to the big screen to see a big movie that's right we talked about the most anticipated film of the year the protege <laughs> what's that marty campbell's back <laughs> that's right okay here's the thing folks we were so excited to see the new film by casino royale director martin campbell oh the foreigner director martin campbell uh, hollywood journeyman par excellence <laughs> yes <laughs> and we watch it were we blown away there's a reason it has to be up on the big screen maggie q in her first starring role in ever in north america i think uh, michael keaton back and badder than ever <laughs> does he purse his lips and dart his eyes around well you're gonna have to listen to the episode to find out if he fucks <laughs> so that's what we're doing on patreon this week five dollars you'll get that episode in our whole back catalog patreon.com slash the important cinema club next week on the podcast we are talking about uh one of our favorite subjects hong kong in a unfortunate context we're talking about hong kong since the handover since 1997 when and the island was returned to China. And this period coincides with a period when Hong Kong cinema went into drastic decline. Now, it's not all the mainland's fault. There were many factors that led to Hong Kong's decline. And we are also doing this subject because it was recently announced that China has decided that they will retroactively censor Chinese cinema. And when they say that, they mean Hong Kong cinema. We don't really know what that means yet. There were there were certain kind of like alarmist social media posts. It's going to be bad. Come on. Like, <laughs> we know it's going to be bad. Basically, China doesn't want certain stuff that they feel is uh, subversive. Subversive. And they will jail you for three years if you uh, do a screening. Okay. So we don't fully know what that means yet. But <laughs> anytime someone goes, we don't really know all the details. It will be exactly what was first announced. <laughs> well, so I mean, China does ban movies regularly. Yeah. But like, they're not allowed to to show supernatural stuff anymore. Does that mean the entire Mr. Vampire catalog is just like, just out of circulation? It will always exist. It's out there in the world. But it's weird to think that like the country of its origin is like, nope, no more. Hong Kong since 1997. I've wanted to do this for a while because even though it's this period of decline, there is much interesting happening there. This is the period when Johnny Toe came to prominence. This is the period when classic films from Kung Fu Hustle to 2046 were made. And so many new stars and directors flourished, right, Oh, Will? oh yeah, like um, mm. uh, Edison Chen. <laughs> That is a joke, literally, for people that need to be tapped into what's going on in Hong Kong. But, you know, speaking of actually new filmmakers that did come post that period, there is a, a filmmaker who made a picture called Love in the Puff, which was a massive hit and was very representative of Hong Kong itself. And it's interesting where that filmmaker has then gone from there. So we'll talk about that. We will talk about one of the quintessential handover era movies made in Hong Kong by Fruit Chan. And I'd also like uh, us to watch a film that is not necessarily directly related with the handover, but is more of a thematic, you know, evolution of where the style is going or trying to go. And nothing is as out there as Choi Hark's Time and Tide when it comes to that kind of representation. So that's what we will be doing next week. 
week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I recently got a Blu-ray release of a film from 1987 called Treasure of the Ninja, and it's not what it sounds like. It sounds like like a canon film's action movie. Or like a Godfrey Ho picture or something like that. It is actually an amateur film that was made by a man named William Lee, who he grew up in New York, but he was going to the University of Ohio at the time. He was living in Dayton, Ohio. And throughout the 80s, he made with a Super 8 camera a multitude of low-budget martial arts films of varying length. I mean, Treasure of the Ninja is a hundred and something minutes. Yeah, it's 106 minutes on the current Blu-ray release mm-hmm. from the American Genre Film Archive. And we should point out that these films, the only reason people knew about Treasure of the Ninja is someone made a bootleg of it, and that's what got passed around. He did try to get it distributed, but it didn't really work that well. Well, apparently, he found out years later, like, he saw a copy of this movie going for $100 on eBay, a VHS copy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, wait, what the heck? The American Genre Film Archive has just released this. Treasure of the Ninja, I uh, which I watched today, I don't even know how to begin to describe the plot of this movie. It, it is a Don't try to explain the plot. I think that the way that you would want to sell it to someone is like, remember those films that you and your friend shot in your backyard where you're like fighting and stuff like that? A notch above that. Like, there's a little bit more slickness there. Also, Tron Super 8. Not a lot of more slick. I, I have to say that the action scenes, I was watching them and I was like, I couldn't do that with my friends. No, you're right. They're good mm. amateur action yeah, scenes. they're good amateur action scenes. Now, as far as a storytelling mechanism, uh, you know, he was still learning his way. Well, it's more about vibe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of plot. There is a lot of plot, but you, you don't need to follow. Place. It takes place in the South China Seas mm. and it's all shot in a park. AKA the university he was attending at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it takes place like in the forest and there's like zombie ninjas and he makes a lot of Bruce Lee noises. Yeah, I mean, I love the fight scenes in the movie. I love when he kicks off a guy's head. It's like 85% fight scenes if we're going to be honest once yeah. it kicks into gear. I, I wanted to love it more. Mm. Like, it's obviously charming and As delightful. As said, Willie, just not in the right headspace this week to no, get into you're it. you're right, you're right. I'm <laughs> Real a, life is pressing down I'm on I'm in you. a bad spot, but it's okay. But this movie, I feel, is the kind of stuff I'm really happy that a company like Bleeding Skull is putting out there that people are actually buying because... Otherwise, it would never get released. Well, the American Genre Film Archive is doing this incredible line of Blu-rays where they sell them through Vinegar Syndrome. Mm. And they have these partnerships with a couple of different groups. They work with Something Weird Video, which, of course, has that amazing library of 60s and 70s exploitation and sexploitation movies that only they have. Bleeding Skull... I believe it's Joseph Semba and Annie Choi and Annie Choi. And they are the world's leading experts in direct video and shot on video, like micro budget underground stuff from the 80s and 90s. I mean, they've been doing it for a number of years. They actually edited together a unfinished film called Jungle Trap, rescored it, added inserts where it needed to be and released it onto the world. They actually just found it when they were talking to the director and they were like, wait, what's this? He's like, ah, it's a film we shot but never finished. And he's like, they were like, can we finish it? And he's like, sure. They are doing important work. Soldiers of Cinema. Well, that guy, Joseph Zamba, was also responsible for freeing Edwards, take it out in trade. That's right. They finally bought the print from the guy. Wasn't he only selling it for like $2,000? It was $5,000. Right. And there was a discussion where me and Will were like, had we, had we known, <laughs> yeah. had we known, because I, I didn't know, I didn't know where it was until I thought there were rumors that you were like on the Edwood forums, you had heard about it, that someone was selling it. Well, I remember that in like 2014, Anthology Film Archives played it on like a DVD screener that mm. they got from the guy. Okay. Um, but like, I didn't know a print existed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, this Treasure of the Ninja set, which uh, despite my uh, reservations or bad headspace or whatever it is, I highly recommend everyone get it. I would 
say it probably has one of the best audio commentaries I've ever heard. Was the director just essentially giving a 107-minute lecture about his life and how he's been able to continue making films, even though at every turn people are like, no, we're not interested. Well, it's just an incredible... I mean, the movie itself is just this incredible artifact. Like, there are so many people in it doing stunts, mm-hmm. you know? You got to check out um, an earlier film that's on the disc that's like 50 minutes. That's his old-school homage. So they're doing, like, drunken kung fu and stuff like that, and you love that. All right, I'm going to go home and watch it right now. <laughs> and there's another one where it's even more of a Bruce Lee ripoff as well. They brought all of this together onto this Blu-ray. It's too much good stuff for the price that it is. Something that you feel that you would be like, I paid $500 for this one VHS tape that exists. And you can just go online and order it in like a beautiful set. I mean, we're living in some kind of a golden age. I should point out that a lot of the early Bleeding Skull and Agfa stuff is going out of print, according to Mark Hansen of Bay Street Video. So if you don't have those early DVDs, like uh, Soul Tangler is one of them, get them now. Bat Pussy, gone, supposedly. I'm sure it'll be back at some point. No, I think it's gone, gone, that they're just moving on from there. No, but somebody will... Like, like <laughs> that pussy will live I'm on. Sorry, so, like somebody will put it out again at some point. <laughs> you think the bat pussy owners finally came out of the woodwork? They're like, hey, you're making money off of our movie. <laughs> so yeah, get out there, buy Bleeding Skull merchandise. I mean, we could have talked the oh, whole the back books. the book. Did you get the new one? Oh the yeah. The 90s trash horror odyssey? I got it. I flipped it open. And I was like, I know most of the, wait, no, never heard of this. Never heard of this. <laughs> never heard of this. And the way they write is so fun to, it's all like personal and like all the reviews aren't just like, oh, look at this bad movie. It comes from a distinct uh, perspective. Love it. You got to pick that book up because the other one that they did long out of print as well. Which is also a masterpiece. The mm. first one was 80s movies. Second yeah. one is 90s movies. And you look at this and you just get so energized and so excited and it's like there are so many new horizons of film to discover. Yeah, so many.